One of the tasks that my wife occasionally will ask me to do that I find very challenging um, is to go get something out of the freezer. Because you see, when I open the freezer, um, I'm pretty convinced that somehow she booby traps the freezer every time she closes it so that when I proceed to open it, something very heavy and frozen will fall out of the freezer and land on an unprotected part of my body, usually a big toe. Um, I think the guy who created the freezer on the bottom, it wasn't just it's more energy efficient. I think it just happened to him too many times. And as an engineer, he had to find a solution. It gets worse when I go down to the basement freezer because you go down to the basement freezer and you open that door and it just looks like a massive block of ice when you open that door. That's basically what it looks like. And she tells me to go in there and find something and I come up and say, I can't find it. She said, it's very obvious. It's right there, right in front of you. And I said, where? And she goes downstairs and proceeds to move four things over to the side and two things down to the bottom and says, it's right there. Couldn't you see it? And I said, I'm sorry, that's not nine definition of it's right there. But I do understand because when I was a student and in grad school, um, I worked in a restaurant, ran the night shift. And one of the things I did, one of the very first things I did when I started work every evening is I would go in and I would walk through this massive walk-in cooler and I would examine what was on every shelf. If there was a container, I would look inside of it. If there was something, a pot was, I'd take the lid off, make sure. Because when you're in the middle of the dinner rush, you don't have time to go in there and look through 18 shelves of things and find something. You need to know where it is right at that moment. Did the same thing with the freezer. And nearly every night, I would send someone in there, a busboy, a dishwasher, a waiter, waitress that was not busy doing something, you know, sometimes even my own manager, say, can you go in there and get me this? They're like, I can't find it. I, it must not. I said, I know it's there. And I would tell them, go to the third shelf, three things high, this color container, and they would come back with it. Very obvious to me, but they just couldn't see it. We have things like that that show up in our lives all the time, don't we? Things that are very obvious to other people, but you just don't see it. I imagine if I took a poll in here of the teenage guys and asked them how many times they've stepped over the same pair of shoes, you know, and uh, proceeded to walk in their bedroom and their mother or father says, didn't you see that pair of shoes? And they can honestly say, I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. But it's right there. It's right there. Or, or how often have you misplaced your keys or your cell phone and you frantically looked all over the house, all over the car, trying to remember where it was, trying to remember the last place you were, and you cannot, and someone says, ah, they're right here, right where you left them. It's not uncommon for me to sit down with someone in my office who's going through a difficult time, and um, they say, can you give me some input on this? And I'll say to them, have you thought about this or have you considered that? And they'll say, why didn't I think of that? It's so obvious. It's so obvious. Well, this morning we're going to talk about seeing the obvious, seeing the obvious. And if you haven't been with us uh, throughout this summer, we've been in a series of studies um, from the, the life of Jesus called the parables of Jesus. And the parables is a term that Jesus used to describe stories he told. Um, not stories that would be typical of stories we would know and understand, but these are stories that illustrate the message that he was communicating in the Sermon on the Mount. He preached this sermon, all these things, and then the rest of the next three years, he proceeded to tell stories to illustrate these principles he was trying to get people to figure out how to live by. Often in the stories, you find yourself listening, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the story, it goes to the right or goes to the left in an unexpected fashion, 
And then the story points at you, and you realize this is not about someone else. This is about me. And so we're going to take a look at one of those stories this morning. And just like I asked the kids to listen to what I was going to say to them and for you to listen in, the story we're going to have was designated for a different group of people. And I'm going to, for sake of assumption, assume it's none of you. But I want you to listen from the outside edge to a message that Jesus has for a group of people because I think in the middle of it, you might find something very significant for you this morning. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Luke 16. Luke 16, our guys have some Bibles and they're going to pass them out um, for you. The Bibles they're passing out, the page number we're going to be on is page 850. Page 850 in Luke 16. And as you're turning there to Luke 16, let me just tell you a little bit about the kind of what's happening at this point in, in Luke's retelling of Jesus' life. Um, this parable is often ignored because uh, the role reversal that occurs at the end is a bit confusing. It, it falls at the end of a trilogy of stories about money. There's a story about a, a young man who wastes all of his father's resources, known as the prodigal son. There's also a story that we looked at earlier this summer about a manager who wastes his boss's resources in the first part of Luke 16. And then the second part of Luke 16, we're going to look at the story of a rich man who wasted his resources. And if you look there in verse 14, chapter 16, verse 14, you can see the audience that says the Pharisees who love money, I'm assuming that's none of you here this morning, um, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Earlier, he had been talking to his disciples, and they were the primary audience, and the Pharisees were kind of listening in on the outside. And as they're listening to this story, they're like, can you believe he told that story? That would never happen. Where did he come up with that one? Who's going to believe that story? And Jesus then turns the tables and points the finger directly at them. Follow along as I read just the first couple of verses of the story. It says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So the first player in the story, the first participant in this narrative, is the guy who's known as the rich guy. The rich guy. And it says he was dressed in purple. Purple was the color of the wealthy of that day because of the dye. Which was, to find that dye, it was a certain snail in the Mediterranean Sea and it was hard to locate. And they had to find that dye for the, and have that dye crushed to turn cloth purple. This guy is the guy that had the best of everything and multiples of everything. He had more than he absolutely needed. And essentially, this guy is what, would have what we would call today a clothing fetish. Now, I won't say a show of hands or have anybody pointing if anybody knows what that means, but this guy had a clothing fetish. He had more than he needed for everything that he had that had, would occur in his life. It also says that he dressed in fine linen. Um, the word fine linen describes undergarments. So essentially, he had designer boxers to go with everything else. You know, a, a very humorous perspective that the author includes is the, the Greek word for fine linen is busos, and the Hebrew word for this is butt. So even his butt was covered with nice stuff, you know, is what the text tells us. Um, and it says there that he lived in luxury every day. Um, 
That idea of luxury is not necessarily referring to his clothing, but likely is referring to his meals. And people served him and provided for him and met his needs every day, all the time, constantly. That's how this guy lived life. The second participant in the story is mentioned in the next verse, and he's a man known as Lazarus. Notice the rich guy is not named. He's not named. Could be anyone. Could be anyone. Lazarus is named. Lazarus is the only individual in any parable that Jesus, that Jesus told, any story that he told that was given a name, the only guy. And his name means God helps. God helps. And look at verse 20. It describes Lazarus in verse 20. It says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, now beggars only beg usually for three reasons. They, they were beggars, um, actually a fourth, but they were beggars because of a physical limitation. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they couldn't walk, or if they had an um, economic downturn and they had to beg for food. But the story says that this guy was laid there. He was placed there. That likely means he couldn't walk. So someone had to physically pick him up every day and put him at the gate. Gates were only around homes that wealthy people lived in. And um, it's pretty common in the parts of the Middle East. You know, beggars will go to the churches on Sunday because they know people come. They'll go to the mosque on Friday because they know people come. And it's the best shot for them to get something. So Lazarus, whose name means God helps, get helps from his friend there but he doesn't get anything more. It says he's covered with sores and he's longing to eat what's left or tossed from the rich man's table. And that's not necessarily like, you know, you go to eat and something misses the mouth and kind of hits the, hits the waist and ends up on the floor and the dog gets it. No, that's not what he's talking about. They would use bread to kind of wipe the plates clean and then toss it out into the street. And that's what he tried to get a hold of. It says the only person that really cared for him as in the end of the verse, it says, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, these are not your average household pets that you let in your house and you feed them and they sleep on your furniture and maybe even in your beds, you know. These are basically wild dogs roaming the streets. That's who they are. And it may seem kind of disgusting to you that the dogs lick the wounds, but um, apparently dog saliva helps to heal wounds quicker. So when your dog's licking that scab, just let him do that. It's actually a good thing for you. In 1994, they found in an archaeological dig 1,300 dogs bred actually in Palestine, or in Palestine, and these animals were to a healing cult in which the owners were paid money to allow the dogs to come lick the wounds so that people would, their wounds would be healed quicker. But think about the contrast that Jesus presents for us here. A rich man who had everything, more and excess than he ever needed. A man who is greatly in need. And the only one who meets those needs are the wild, roaming dogs. I don't know about you, but if this guy's name means God helps, it doesn't appear that he's getting much help right now. It really doesn't. Well, the story takes a turn as both the rich man and Lazarus die in verse 22. 
And, and Lazarus the beggar dies, and it says that the angels carried him. It says there in the text that Abraham's side. Some of the older translations say Abraham's bosom. You say, what is that? Well, the Talmud, which is the Jewish interpretation um, and additional rules and guidelines for the Jewish people of how to live, describes the Talmud as a place of, of, um, of comfort, a place of rest before entering um, God's presence. Now, whether this is for real or just part of Jesus' story that connected with the traditions that they spoke about, we don't really know, but it's part of the story. And it describes him as being there in a place with Abraham, who's one of the, the pillars of their faith, and in a place of comfort. You know, when they would set someone and rest someone on another person's chest, it was a place of comfort and ease. And notice who took Lazarus there. The angels took him there. Angels took him there. This guy doesn't have any help. Well, there's people carrying him, and there's dogs taking care of him, and now the angels are providing him, but the rich guy does nothing. He does nothing. The rich guy dies. He gets put in the ground. But to their surprise, their roles gets reversed. Look in verse 23. It says in verse 23, it says, In Hades, where he was in torment, the rich guy, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Again, Hades, not a phrase that is explained in the Bible, but just simply used to refer to a place of suffering and torment for those that reject God. And he describes him as being at this place and able to see Abraham and see Lazarus. Say, John, is that true of people who have died and are in in a place of torment of, of hell and place of um, God's presence called heaven? Honestly, I don't really know. I don't really know. But for the story purposes, this is the way Jesus described it. And he goes on in a surprising way to see the rich man speak. And look what he says in verse 24. He called up to him, Father Abraham, trying to use the family card, He said, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich guy walked past Lazarus every day. His friends would come, put him by the gate. Rich man would go in and out, past him every day. In and out, pass him every day. Likely never speak to him, never acknowledge him. But you get this sense that he knows who he is because he recognizes him. And upon seeing Lazarus and seeing his condition that he's in a place of torment and seeing Lazarus in a place of comfort and ease you would almost expect that he might have a change of heart. He might say, Lazarus, I know I walked past you all those times and, and I really shouldn't have. Can you somehow find it in your heart to forgive me? And can you somehow help me? I'm in a difficult time. I'm in a crisis. I'm in a point of need. Can you somehow do something for me? and for him to express humility, but he really doesn't. Look what he goes on to say in verse 24. He called on him, 
And he said, have pity on me. So the, the man who had pity on no one asked Abraham to have pity on him. The man who would not serve Lazarus or help him in any way, even to give him the crumbs off of his table, the scraps, the leftovers from his meal, asked to have Lazarus serve him. The one who only took care of his own needs asked to have his needs met. When Lazarus was in pain, he was ignored by the rich man, and now the rich man in torment can't even handle the suffering that he's experiencing. It's almost like he can't imagine he's in this setting where now he needs to be served. The tables have been completely turned. What would Lazarus do? Have you ever been in a position where someone has treated you poorly and the tables got flipped? Have you ever had an older brother or sister treat you badly and they got caught by mom and dad? Have you ever had a boss who misused their authority over you and demanded more of you than was reasonable and took credit for all your work and then he got exposed by management? Have you ever had a parent or relative that treated you badly, maybe even abused you, and they got caught? What did you think in that moment in time? What went through your mind? It's about time. See, what goes around, what comes around, goes around. Ironically, you hear nothing from Lazarus. Not a word. Not a word. You almost could justify him exploding in rage, saying, how could you do such a thing? Who are you? Well, in the position you're in to ask something of me? Don't you get what's happened? This is what you get for the way that you lived. He's strangely silent. You could almost justify him saying, just leave that selfish monster to let the fires of hell burn his flesh off. But nothing. Nothing. So Abraham turns to the man and says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. It's as if Abraham said, You know, you got all that's coming to you and there's nothing more. But this poor man, this Lazarus, he didn't have much, but he's going to live the rest of his life in a place of comfort. He then goes on to describe in verse 26 this chasm. He said, there's this chasm between the two of you and, and, and people can't go back and forth. Remember, the, the rich man asked for Lazarus to come to him. And part of me almost wonders, speculates, that if it was possible, would Lazarus have even considered going and offering something to this man as awful and detestable as he has been? Well, the rich man doesn't give up, and he shows a little bit of humanity. In verse 27, he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. He says, I've got five brothers. Would you at least tell them about this situation? And Jesus said, they've got truth. 
if they don't listen to what I have to say and what's already being told to them, someone even coming back from the dead won't do any good. Ironically, a little bit later in the Gospel of John, a man named Lazarus, ironically enough, does rise from the dead. And as he rises from the dead, he's presented to the religious leaders. The story of his rising of the dead is presented to the chief priests and the religious leaders. And they're like, That's not, that couldn't really happen. It's not possible. They tried to bury it and hide it. Even someone came back from the dead, and they didn't even believe it. So what's the point of this story? Well, I don't think this is a story condemning wealth. But I think it's a story, if we remind ourselves that Jesus was talking to people who love money and his disciples were on the outside listening to this, of an element of our faith, an element of following Jesus, an element of living out our faith that often doesn't get mentioned. When we talk about what does following Jesus look like and, and what would that look like in my life, it's things like um, reading the Bible, it's things like prayer, it's things like being here in a church service or, or serving in some way. But how often do we include in the conversation, it includes things like serving the poor or serving someone in need. I know for me in my background, what I was raised with in the context of church, that never entered the equation it was our job to share the gospel, and that's an important component of our faith journey and in living out our faith, but it never got included that we have a responsibility and an obligation to serve people in need. As you've often heard me say, we are the wealthy ones. You might say, well, John, you don't really know how many miles are on my car or you don't really know, uh, you know, where I am on the totem pole at my job or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're the wealthy ones. We're the wealthy ones. And you know what? Being wealthy and having your basic needs being met puts you in a position to do. It puts you in a position to walk right past every day someone laying there in need right near you. Because you see it every day and you walk past it and you see it every day and you drive past it or you see it every day in the cafeteria at school and you just ignore it. You see it every day and you develop this thing called compassion fatigue where it's so much and it's just there and it basically becomes like a street sign that you don't even see when you're driving down the road. The truth is, it's possible to avoid people in need. And if you avoid people in need, it really forces you to pay attention to what James said when he said, if your faith doesn't have action to it, then it's just words. It's just words. Remember what James said in the end of James 1? He said, this is true religion to pay attention to the widows in need and orphans, those that are less deserving, those that are in those difficult situations. You say, John, are you suggesting that people who ignore the needs of the poor that, and their Christ followers, that they don't have a relationship with God? I'm not suggesting that. And I'm also not suggesting that people who just take care of the needs of the poor are in a better standing with God. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting to you that Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. 
And in many of his miracles and many of his stories, he talks about paying attention to the needs of others and those who are less fortunate. The rich man used his resources only for himself, and I would add in our context, only for his family. And he didn't pay attention to the needs of others around him. You might be saying, John, how do I pay attention to those needs? I've asked one of our college students, Sarah Moeller, if she would join me on stage. And um, Sarah has some interesting experiences over this last year. And I've asked her to join me and share some of those experiences uh, with us this morning. Um, Sarah spent some time last fall. She spent four months in um, the Middle East, uh, in the land of Israel, actually um, in the city of Jerusalem, studying at Jerusalem University College. And Um, While Sarah was there, she had some interesting experiences kind of moving out of uh, rural Lancaster County into more of an urban setting. So, uh, Sarah, you want to tell us a little bit about that experience and what God did in your heart during that time? Um, Let me turn it on, sorry. There we go. That's good. Yeah, you're on. Um, Okay, there it is. Um, So... As Pastor John mentioned, I was in Jerusalem, um, a city in Israel, uh, last semester. Um, and when I was there, um, there was lots of people, as many in many cities, there's lots of people on the streets asking for money, um, which can be kind of an uncomfortable thing, especially coming from a very rural environment where you don't see that every day. Um, and so before I went to Israel, I was kind of struggling with what do you do with that? What do you do when you see someone asking for money? Do you give money to them? Do you talk to them? Do you pray with them? Like, what do you do? And so that was something I was kind of struggling with before I went to Israel. Um, and so one day when I was there, I was kind of feeling led by God to go a little bit above my comfort zone. And rather than just put a couple dollars in someone's cup um, or just say hi to them, he wanted me to do more. Um, and so I was out kind of out shopping for the day by myself. Um, and there was a man who I saw who I'd seen before. Uh, he, had, he was in his wheelchair and he had a whole bunch of clothes and bags with him. Um, so it looked like maybe he, he lived outside or slept in his wheelchair. I'm not really sure what his situation was. Um, but I felt God calling um, me to talk to him, which was not very comfortable for me. So I went up. I asked him his name. Um, I asked him if I could pray with him. I don't think he really understood. There was kind of a language barrier there. Um, he spoke Hebrew and I spoke English, so it was kind of difficult. Um, but I prayed with him anyways and kind of felt very uncomfortable the whole time. I saw, you know, a lot of people were looking at me kind of weird, and it just it felt very odd. Um, I felt like people were thinking, like, what is this American tourist doing? Who does she think she is? You know, why is she talking to this man? Um, And after we finished praying, um, I had asked him, you know, if he wanted something to eat. He asked me to get him a sandwich from a particular shop down the street. But again, there was a language barrier. I wasn't really sure exactly what he was saying and, like, what shop he was saying. And I didn't really know what he wanted me to get. So I kind of just guest and got him a sandwich, but it was apparently the wrong sandwich, and he was upset about it, and he was kind of getting aggravated, frustrated about the language barrier, and um, kind of started raising his voice at me, Um, and so we didn't have a very pleasant interaction, and kind of left on a sort of unpleasant note. I had to leave because I was was late for a class, so I was just like, all right, well, I'll see you later, here's some food, and kind of was on my way, Um, and I was feeling kind of discouraged about it because I was expecting, you know, God, you called me to talk to this man. Why was it such a bad interaction? 
Um, and I just kind of realized that sometimes God calls you to do things, and they're really uncomfortable and hard, and you just have to kind of ignore the people that are watching, because that can be very uncomfortable, and the people that are, you know, kind of wondering, like, what are you doing talking to this man, obviously, you know, like, you're not friends with him or whatever. Um, and so just trying to work through how to how it go about that was hard. I'd ask Sarah to share that story with us because I think sometimes when we see this, we kind of feel a sense of conviction that I should do something. And sometimes when we do something, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. And, and that doesn't mean God's not in it. It doesn't mean God's not stirred your heart and you're not called to follow his direction. Um, this summer then, uh, Sarah had a unique opportunity. Uh, she was planning to go, I think you said you're planning to do like an internship with the park services. And instead, she decided to uh, spend a summer working at Broad Street Ministries in downtown Philly. Very different than the park services. So, um, and uh, this experience for her this summer was to take groups of, of uh, students who lived in all different parts of the country and give them exposure to urban poverty and not only give them exposure to it, but then help them process um, what did they see, what did they experience, what did they learn, um, where does God show up in the midst of all of this, and then what is, it, what is the challenge for them to go and live this out. And so this summer, you were confronted with this need over and over and over again. And what was one of the learnings that came out of that for you this summer, Sarah? Um, so the interaction I had with the man in Israel kind of started me to be interested in doing urban ministry. And I was um, one of the reasons I went to Broad Street Ministries, and I was like, yeah, I'll be around people asking for money every single day, and so I'll get really comfortable with it, and I'll, I'll have an answer, and things will make sense. And that's not necessarily really what happened. Um, so I went out with youth every day, and one of the sites that we went to is we sold newspapers with other people um, in the city who were experiencing poverty or homelessness. They were able to buy the papers for 25 cents and sell them for a dollar, making a 75-cent profit. Um, so this could sustain them, help them get back on their feet if they're between jobs or between housing or something like that. So we, we went out with them and sold the newspapers on the streets. Um, and I think the biggest thing about that entire experience was that you were constantly being ignored by people. People wouldn't look at you. People wouldn't talk to you. You were constantly saying, like, would you like to buy this newspaper without any response? And experiencing that ourselves for, like, two hours, when some people experience that every single day, was incredibly eye-opening because you realize how important it is to just acknowledge people and to give people the dignity of saying hi to them and looking them in the eye and maybe asking them how their day is going, maybe strike up a conversation with them. Um, but at the very least, giving eye contact and saying hi to people um, can be a really big thing. And so I didn't really walk away with an answer. Um, I didn't walk away feeling comfortable every time I passed someone um, who is experiencing homelessness or poverty on the streets. In fact, I still feel uncomfortable. Uh, that discomfort doesn't really go away. And I think that's a good thing because I think if you let yourself still feel, um, you know, whatever about it, feel kind of... a kind of something stirring in you about it. I think that's a good thing because it means something's working in you. Um, and so I think the biggest takeaway I have is that just giving people the dignity of, you know, a smile or a hello, um, no matter how uncomfortable it is, is super important. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your stories with us. I appreciate that. You can just leave that right there on the, on the seat. You know, and I asked Sarah to share these stories because um, it, it really seemed like it helped her to see and get a bigger picture of the needs of people and, and wrestling with how to respond. And as you heard her saying over and over again, this doesn't get any easier. This is not something that's very comfortable. And 
you might think, well, well, John, that's, that's great, but uh, I'm not going to be spending the summer down on Broad Street. You know, it's just not kind of in the, in the cards for me, you know. And um, so what does that mean and what does that look like for me? And what does that look like for me in my journey? And you may recall about two weeks ago, I challenged you with a prayer. And that prayer was, God, help me serve someone in need who doesn't expect to be served by me. And I challenge you to pray that prayer every day. And, and someone sent me a, a, a note, and I want to just share this with you about an opportunity that God provided them that might help to open your eyes about what this looks like for you. It says, thanks for that challenge last Sunday. God gave me an opportunity on Monday night. I was in the grocery store and observed a young couple with a baby who seemed very stressed out about what food to get and how they would pay for it. I had $20 cash with me and felt God prompting me to give it to them. I offered it to them, and the girl broke down in tears and could hardly say a word. Uh, The couple found me a few minutes later in the store and profusely thanked me. The girl said she was far from home in Texas and away from family, and no one ever offered any help like that before and how much it meant. I was able to tell them um, about the love of God and share that love with them. And after a difficult and and discouraging day, I went home with an encouraged, joyful heart, thankful that God had blessed me with this opportunity. You know, I think part of this story and the point of this story is for us to remind ourselves that Every single day, you and I walk by someone in need. And, and I don't know what that need's going to look like. It may not be a panhandle or shaking a cup, um, but it might be someone who's just faced a very difficult experience in their life. It might be someone that just needs you to give them the dignity of treating them, as Sarah said. Whether that's a coworker in the cube whether it's the guy bagging your groceries or collecting carts in Weaver's Market parking lot, um, whatever that is, whatever that is. You see, this is a part of our faith. This is a part of living out our faith in which we recognize that God has created every person in His image and in His likeness. Are there people that have made a disaster of their lives and taking advantage of the system? Absolutely. And you know what? God's going to get that all taken care of in the end. But that's not our job to figure that out now. Our job is not to ignore the need when we pass by it every day. And so my challenge for you is this. Number one is that you will pray that God will open your eyes. Just say, God, open my eyes to see the needs of people around me. Number two, when you see someone need, act on it. Act on it. You you heard Sarah share the story of how how often she felt paralyzed and she wasn't sure what to do and, and, and yet she just had to take a step and act on it, not knowing what God was up to and what He might do. And in the process, offer dignity, give generously, enter their story, but listen and obey God's voice as He prompts you to do this. I can honestly tell you when Sarah was relaying this story about the newspaper people, been there and done that as she described what those people's, how those people responded and treated um, clearly has happened to me. Um, you know, I was with my dad at the baseball game on Monday down at the Orioles game, and when we left, there were panhandlers all over the place. You know, they knew where to set themselves as people were walking past them. And I hadn't really sat with this story, and I found myself sitting with this story thinking, what would I do differently if I was there this week and I crossed paths with them? And so I don't know when or where or how God's going to bring your life to intersect with someone in need, but I'm fairly confident that you will cross paths with someone in that situation this week.
And the challenge for you is what will you do with it? Will you join me in prayer as we close this morning? God, as we look at this story of rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus didn't have anything, but he ended up with everything. And the rich guy had everything and ended up with nothing. Um, It's kind of surprising and staggering and unsettling. And I think that's what Jesus wanted to have happen. To the Pharisees. But his disciples were standing there listening to this story as well. And um, God, one of the things that the early church was marked by is they cared for the poor. They cared for people in need. And they spread the life-changing message of the gospel. It wasn't one or the other. It was both. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to forget what we celebrated earlier, and that's the, the truth that Jesus died on the cross and His death is what gives us the possibility of eternal life. But that we'd also remember Lazarus and that the rich man didn't see the need that was right in front of him. Help us, God, to have our eyes open and see the needs that you put right in front of us this week. In your name we pray, amen.